The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. Asian stocks diverge after a choppy Wall Street session as investors count down to the Fed's key rate decision. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tells CNBC she expects some turbulence in the economy. There are lags in the impact of monetary policy on the economy, and we would expect to see some impacts. Instacart prices shares at the top of its range, given the online delivery firm a valuation of almost $10 billion as a recovery in the IPO market gathers pace. The U.S. auto union threatening more strikes, setting a Friday deadline for Detroit's big three to improve their proposals. As sources tell CNBC, the latest offer from Stellantis could see 18 facilities closed. We had you know, some meetings over the weekend, but uh, you know, we still have a long way to go. And uh, that's going to be up to the companies on you know, how, how this plays out. So uh, we'll uh, see how things progress the next few days. And uh, you know, if we have to amp up pressure, that's what we're going to do. And oil prices hitting fresh 10-month highs as Brent cracks $95 a barrel, whilst the Saudi Arabian energy minister insists production cuts are not just a means to force prices higher. It's not about, again, this jacking up prices. It's about, about this, making the decision at the right time when we have the data and when we have the clarity the ECB reportedly eyes asking lenders to raise the reserve requirements as the central bank looks to clamp down on excess liquidity in its inflation fight. A lack of conviction on the street yesterday. Investors not wanting to stick their necks out, waiting for more information from the Fed this week. Seen as a real market to moving event potentially from the Fed, even though we're unlikely to have a rate hike. The market's looking for fresh news around those economic projections. Will we be having a soft landing? Will we be looking at something a little bit deeper than that? And the market wanting that evidence around the extent of that pace around economic growth. Of course, the dot plots are what happens from here in terms of projected rate cuts for next year. So uh, many just hitting the sidelines yesterday. You can see very slim ranges on the boards in terms of moving stocks. Apple to the upside, Tesla to the downside. A couple of big stocks on the move in that uh, session yesterday. And of course, energy marching higher as well. One of the big moves that we saw, some of the green on the charts, uh, but uh, was those consumer discretionary names that were under pressure as a result. To the Treasury market, this is how we're setting up on the trade. 4.31 on that US 10-year yield at this point and over the course. So you can see it's been just grinding higher so far in recent months to what we've got on the dollar trade as a result uh, this is how we approached this morning sterling dollar 123.78 a slight drift south again further off that 124 handle so not just the fed we're watching when it comes to central banks this week the bank of england too as we uh, set up for more rate hikes here in the uk euro dollar a little bit weaker drifting off by about a tenth of a percent euro dollar firmer versus the japanese yen and a euro a dollar yen rather i should say and dollar stronger versus the yuan so this is telling you a story a story of greenback strength to that wti brent trade let's just take a quick look at what we've got as uh, we continue to see those supply concerns dominate the 
the market. We are above what 1% at this point, 92.47, closing the handle towards that $100 mark, 95 where we were perched on Brent prices, up six tenths of a percent. So stronger levels we're seeing across the board as we see a bounce here. Uh, some of the analysts are looking at whether that $100 barrel mark is going to be the next uh, stop for some of these market moves. In terms of Asia, this is what the market is doing across in that region. We're 1% down on the Japanese stock market. 363 points down. The oil price uh, potentially having an impact on Japanese stocks. The Hong Kong market drifting two tenths, flatlining for China and Australia modestly weaker. So a little bit of caution across on those Asian markets today. And as for US futures, uh, any sign of activity? Uh, this is what we're looking at as we count down to that US session later on. We're just tilting into the red at this early hour. Steve. Very good morning to you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, plenty to look forward to as well. Not least the fact that we've got Carl Weinberg on set in about three minutes time. So let's get through this uh, Fed story. Markets are, are pricing in a near certainty that the Fed will hold rates at its decision tomorrow. Investors focusing on potential insights into the central bank's future path. The Fed will release its latest dot plot with June's median projections suggesting one more hike this year, followed by a percentage point of cuts next year. Traders currently seeing a more than 70% chance of the Fed holding rates again in November, according to the CME's FedWatch tool, with the implied probability of a hike falling in recent weeks. The U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNBC she doesn't see signs of an economic downturn, despite higher interest rates. We have a good, healthy labor market, but not quite as hot as it was. And that's important because, um, obviously, our objective is to bring inflation back down to 2%. There are lags in the impact of monetary policy on the economy, and we would expect to see some impacts. I think we've certainly seen it in the housing market. But look, we still have a good, healthy labor market. Consumer spending remains quite robust. Very interesting. Over 90% of U.S. adults have cut their spending in the past six months as price pressures continue, according to a morning consult survey for CNBC. 76% planning to cut down on non-essential spending ahead of the holiday season, which is very interesting, isn't it? Because we spend a lot of time on this channel saying, oh, it's only a tiny percentage of mortgage holders that have actually got to cope with the higher rates. But that's only one aspect of their total spending, isn't it? Anyway, economic concerns were highest amongst low and middle income earners. Well, there's a surprise, uh, with 61% of the middle income group saying the current economic situation is hitting their finances. Clothing and apparel, uh, as well as restaurant and bar spending, were the most common sectors for consumer spending cuts. We'll come back to this. Uh, meanwhile, the Bank of International Settlements has warned that a buildup of short bets on U.S. Treasury futures is a financial vulnerability with the potential to dislocate fixed income markets. The central bank umbrella group joins the Fed and the Financial Stability Board in warning about the risks of hedge fund bond bets. I think we need to be a bit more subtle on it. I don't think it's actual bets because they're basically cash against futures. It's the leverage side of it, which we didn't mention in that read as well. It's the fact that they're leveraged. And when leverage goes wrong, it goes wrong very badly on margin calls, as I think we've tried to educate you over the years. So it's the leverage side of the bet. Not the fact when we talk about the trillions of dollars out there in derivatives world, if it's totally hedged cash against futures, then it's not a problem. It's if it's leverage and there's margin calls, that's when things get interesting. Janet Yellen told CNBC, though, she's not worried about the ability of the U.S. to issue bonds in order to finance government spending. Not really seeing concerns in the bond market about issuance. 
Um, obviously, the Fed has, tight, has tightened monetary policy, and that's pushed rates up. But um, there are pay-fors in the legislation that funded um, all of these all of these programs, and so um, I'm not really concerned about the impact that they'll have. Well, he's only had 10 hours travelling to get here, which means that Karen and I should have a good uh, chance at uh, a good, robustious discussion with Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist at High Frequency Economics. Always a pleasure, sir. Morning, Never Steve. dull. Let, morning, let's live Karen. up to that part. Good to so be look, back um, here. Well, I mean, there's so many things to talk about. I will go back to that survey that we just consulted there as well. The only reason is because it's actually something that you've touched upon uh, in your, your most recent note, and that is uh, how um, inflationary impetus plus interest rates are affecting the finances of Americans as well, because in an economy that's so dominated by the consumer, this is absolutely key, isn't it? It certainly is. The consumer is a big part of U.S. GDP growth, and the cutback in spending probably reflects something else we've been writing about at High Frequency Economics, which is that a lot of people build up a lot of cash savings over the uh, pandemic period. And that we saw that in bank balances, money on deposit at banks. We've seen that in savings rates. A lot of people from working at home saved money. A lot of people were overcompensated being on unemployment. And those savings are winding down now. That cushion is winding down. And if anything, people are now looking at the prospect of having to restore their cash balances. And that means they're going to be spending less. So a slowdown in consumer spending, not a crash, not a recession, but a slowdown in consumer spending is very much a part of what we've been thinking about. I guess what I'm, I need to ask is, is have the interest rates had the bang for the buck that the market and the Fed thought they would do as well? Because we're now pontificating over November, September, eschewing for no change as well. It would be an extraordinary surprise if there was a hike there as well. But bearing in mind, you've got the likes of Goldman Sachs upping their growth forecast for the US economy, I think to 2% rather than the previous 1.1 as well. So the economy is still moving quite nicely. The consumer by and large doesn't look in too much trouble, although it is a bit more stretched, as that survey just said there as well. Uh, so and inflation is still way too high, albeit coming down at a headline and a core level as well. Have the interest rates worked? Interest rates have had less of a bang than we would have expected from a 500 basis point tightening of monetary conditions. In previous business cycle experience, we would have expected to see a much sharper slowdown of the U.S. economy. That hasn't happened largely because people have had a lot of cash put in their pockets by government programs, by the printing of money and so forth. So we're working that off. We're getting back to the point where monetary policy can bite again and there will come a time when it will be even more important. We saw in the NAHB figures yesterday, we saw the, the weakness ascribed to, uh, in the housing market ascribed to the higher financing costs for houses. So we're getting to the point where monetary policy will bite more. But again, consumers still have a lot of cash. They still have a lot of wealth if they're homeowners. So not everybody in the United States is doing well, as we see with the auto workers in Detroit. They're not happy. But for many people in the United States right now, they're better off than they had been before. Carl, there is a perception that if you tackle the lower end, if you tighten spending, then the economy slows down because it's those with less disposable income, lower demographics that typically spend the money that they have, hence the problem with those checks that were uh, dispensed. But we know that there's been greater disparity in the United States in recent years as well. I mean, this under even the Trump era presidency. What's the challenge this time around then as we talk about slower spending? Because I don't know if the top end is slowing their spending as much. I mean, there is a view they never spent, but I don't know, from what I've seen in recent times, and we see it on the luxury spending numbers, the US has been a big component of those luxury spending numbers as well. Is the top end of town going to tighten their belt at some point? 
Well, the top end right now is still doing rather well. I mean, financial assets are still doing quite well. Housing assets are doing quite well. Top end is not feeling a lot of pain at this particular point in time. And things like a, a rise in gasoline prices, that doesn't really affect them very much at all, given where they are on the income scale. But the lower end, which is the bigger part of the of the um, of the, the the population, they're starting to feel the pinch. They've been feeling a pinch on real wages all along through this episode because real wages have not kept up with inflation. So we're going to see increased labor unrest. We're going to see increased demand for wages, and we're going to see spending cutbacks and survey results like the ones that you and Steve were talking about just a few minutes ago. Let's tackle the core and what we're seeing on the inflation numbers because there is a view that the core numbers that the Fed has penciled in are way too high. Uh, what, 3.9% they're talking about in terms of some of the core numbers that they're looking at uh, for that, the, the final stretch as they tally up for the rest of the year. A lot of the economists are saying, look, we're not going to get anywhere near that. They're looking at um, Goldman Sachs, uh, JP Morgan saying 3.4% is where we see those core prices settling. That's below the Fed projections. You know, we, I'm just going to reel you back in a little bit, Karen, because we're talking about these changes in pr inflation from 3% to 2%, 4% to 3%. Right? Ten years from now, no one's going to remember this. All right? What are we experiencing? We're experiencing a one-time adjustment in prices to a one-time excessive printing of money caused by a one-time excess of fiscal stimulus in a time of unprecedented economic conditions. It's a blip in history. And the important thing, as Fed Chair says, Fed Chair Powell says, we're looking at the medium term, we're looking at getting on course for the longer term. Right? We're getting back there. That's the main thing to take uh, away from all the uh, data. This is where it gets interesting and I start rolling up my sleeves. To die. I knew we'd get there, but I completely disagree. There you go. One time? What's one time about the COVID spending, which has then rolled into the CHIPS Act, which has then rolled into the IRA spending, which has led the US to have an 8% budget deficit? Doesn't sound worry one time to me. Sounds terrifying, Carl, because the US sovereign finances are in an absolute mess. If you project out five years according to the CBO. This is not one-time stuff. This is a presidency after presidency spending beyond their means. And I'm not talking about Democrat or Republican. I'm talking about both of them. No contest whatsoever. I agree with oh, you. Oh, come on. The deficit, Disagree. The deficit is a problem. <laughs> but look at the money, okay? The printing of money. That's the monetary phenomenon that causes inflation. Money supply had a trajectory that was non-inflationary for the 20 years before COVID. And then we popped 25% above that trajectory during the pandemic. That 25% increase in the money supply is unprecedented. And it led to an unprecedented excess of demand, right, fueled also by the fiscal policies for sure. But it was the monetary excess that caused, that allowed the inflation it to occur. It passed the baton to another part of the, the balance sheet, which is under, look at the, the inflationary impetus from, um, you have a federal scheme, yeah? Let's call it the IRA. Uh, the inflation reduction. And let's say we think we're going to raise, well, I don't know, 277, maybe 350 billion bucks from this in terms of investment. And then they start scratching and say, hang on a second, it's raised 1.2 trillion as well. That smells like inflation to me. And that says to me why the core and headline may never go, well, not never, but won't go down anywhere near as quickly as, as people are hoping for. Because you, you've got this um, another enormous stimulus going on. Well, to borrow a term from Nigel Lawson, okay, the Fed is imposing a monetary corset on the economy. All right? It's preventing the money supply from growing to accommodate that increase in prices. So what happens? There are two ways that this excess spending can occur. If the money's not there, all right, we can get a recession, 
which we will eventually, and whether it comes sooner or later is a matter of course, but it does not seem imminent right now, there's no sign of it. Or we can blow out our trade deficit, which is also something that's probably likely in the cards moving forward, and that creates questions for the dollar if you want to think longer term about the dollar. There's a view that the fiscal stimulus is supporting growth. So the reason why we're seeing better growth numbers than anticipated at this point is that you've got this prop with the fiscal stimulus. The issue is next year that if the growth that we're seeing is strong enough, then we're not going to get the rate cuts that the market's starting to price in the 80 the basis points of rate cuts. What do you think is going to happen on that scenario? Do you think growth is going to shock and continue to be stronger? Well, growth is limited right now by population. We are in the United States at full employment for all intents and purposes. And when you're at full employment, how do you get the economy to grow? How do you get more GDP? Or said differently, why is 2% GDP growth even remotely acceptable? And your options for growth are either to import more people, which is politically contestuous, or to improve productivity. Which AI. Is, AI is improving productivity though, right? I don't know. Has it helped you this morning, AI, in any way, <laughs> shape, or form? I didn't uh, consult ChatGPT for my script for this morning. Yeah, that's because um, we're old school, Carl. Yeah, um, well, sorry, it's, it's coming, I, US isn't at full yet. employment. US is at full employment if you just look at the headline figure of 3. Point whatever it is, 3.9. Is it 3.9 now? I didn't even know. You've got 62.8% participation rate. That doesn't sound like full employment to me. So to me, full employment is when everybody who wants a job can find a job. And that's well, pretty much where we are. people who are economically <laughs> underused still want a job. They just can't find the job. I don't know. Have you spoken to any of those people recently? We have record high... You're me, 37% of the American workforce don't want to work in an economically viable job. Well, that's what they're revealing, okay? We're not seeing them lined up for welfare. We're not seeing them lined up for unemployment insurance. Right? Yeah, that, that's and, like, sorry, Carl. 40 million Americans are on food stamps. Yes, that's so true. You're telling me that, that 40 million Americans want to be on food stamps? No. They don't want better jobs. I'm just going to say it again, right? There are lots of reasons why people don't seek work, but everyone who wants a job in the United States can pretty much find one right now. There are help wanted signs up everywhere at all the, the, the grocery stores, at all of the, the quick food markets, at all of the restaurants. Everybody's looking for help in the United States. Contractors can't get people to work on jobs, to do construction, to do home improvements, to do landscaping, to do anything. So we are in effect at a tight labor market. Now the social, the social question of why people aren't coming back to work, that's a different question. But from an economic point of view, we're squeezing out as many workers as we can get right now. And we're seeing that reflected in the still strong bid on wages. Uh, even though we have this inflation episode going on, we do have a, a bid on wages as well. That's slowing, of course. But for all intents and purposes, a factory can't go out and hire a new shift and put them to work to make more stuff because there aren't enough workers to staff that shift. So piece this together for us. We've got a lot of market participants on the sidelines waiting for some commentary. It could still be somewhat hawkish from Jay Powell keeping the November rate hike on the table just in case uh, as the market then prices in these rate cuts for next year. What do you think the playbook is for, from here? What do market participants look for? From the Fed. Yeah. The Fed, is its job is to ensure that the worst possible outcomes don't occur. Your market participants, their job is to ensure that the best possible outcomes do occur for their clients. So it's not unsurprising that we have a divergence of points of view. Jay Powell is going to keep that, uh, that option to hike rates again on the table until the cows come home. 
he is going to continually hold the threat over the markets and the economy that if prices don't stabilize, that the Fed is there to do its job. Is it just a threat or do you think he's hiking still? I think he can hike if it goes sour. Easy hiking. Where I am right now in my thinking about the U.S. economy, inflation is going back down to target, on trajectory, and the Fed should be pretty happy with the way things have worked out. Um, the dollar, you, you alluded to it, and so I just want to come back to that very briefly as well. The, the medium to longer term picture on the dollar. I, there is a load of great arguments I keep hearing about why there's going to be a de-dollarization while the dollar is on a terminal path to the downside. I mentioned one about the amount of uh, financing that, need, that needs to be issued by the Treasury over the next few years to pay for fiscal spending, uh, uh, whoever's in the uh, administration as well. Um, well. How do you feel about this dollar story as well? I'm, I'm kind of sceptical about the um, alternative currency story that keeps getting touted every few years. Oh, we've talked, you know, I haven't been here for four years and we <laughs> talked about this the last time I was here Did as we well. Really? All right. well yes, they, we, there you go, it, yes, it comes yes, around, doesn't it? You know, China wants to promote the yuan and there's a problem, right? There's, I forget how many trillion, whether it's eight or 10 or 12 trillion dollars just floating around in the world waiting to be used for transactions. And there aren't enough yuan in circulation around the world so that a cotton grower in Egypt can sell his or her product to a, a, a loom in Japan and, and not affect the value the of the Chinese don't want to lose control of their currency, hence they can't uh, internationalize it, can they? Well, that, that the control of the currency is not the issue for them. I think global domination is where they want to go. But in order to get enough yuan out there in circulation to use the yuan as a global currency, they have to run deficits on their balance of payments, not just for a year or two or three, but for decades. And right now they are running surpluses on their balance of payments, all right? It ain't happening. Where they impose yuan trade through the Belt and Road system, there they can get the yuan to be the transaction currency. When they're talking to their Russian friends, all right, who don't want any stinking dollars, all right, they're happy to promote the use of the yuan as a currency and, and set up a little small currency zone with them. But in the big world, they need a lot more dollars for transactions than the Chinese are able to provide to the world. There's no way whatsoever that the yuan can take over as the world's reserve currency. Carl, thank you very much for stopping by to see us. Carl Weinberg with us, Chief Economist, High Frequency Economics. CNBC is delivering Alpha Summit is just around the corner. You can join top investors and leaders on the 28th of September in New York for insight, analysis and ideas to help you balance risk with maximizing returns. You can scan that QR code on your screen now or you can visit cnbcevents.com slash delivering alpha to find out more. Uh, it depends on the size of your screen. Oh, that's a bit far away from me. You can you can have a go. Well, should I try? Leave it up. I can't because I can't draw because I upset the directors if I go to the uh, try and do it now. I'm sure it works. Let's <laughs> hope <laughs> so. I'll have more from the central banking world later on the show with the Bank of England Deputy Governor Sam Woods. Don't miss that interview at 9:15 CET. And coming up on the show, investors look to see whether Ocado can deliver as the grocer oh, gears good. up to report third quarter numbers. This after a positive analyst call sent its higher in Monday's trade, bucking the trend for broader UK equities. US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen telling CNBC both sides in the UAW auto strike need to work for a win-win resolution as the union head Sean Fain warns of further action. Plus, we get a check on the insurance sector when we speak to Swiss Re's life and health reinsurance CEO, Paul Murray. That exclusive interview coming up at 8.30 CET.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. I don't think there's an individual stock that we're spending so much time looking at the minutiae of their share movement as much as ARM. So ARM holdings uh, ticked lower in extended trade after notching a decline of 4.5% on Monday, continuing Friday's downward shift and putting it 16% off the peak. I mean, it's still trading at an elevated level, net-net. Though, oh, it just says that here. I didn't, <laughs> though it still trades at a substantial premium to Thursday's listing price. Uh, the street appears to be more sanguine with uh, Bernstein initiating coverage at underperform. Monday was the first day options in the stock were available to trade with some 74,000 contracts changing hands. Data from LSEG shows a put-to-call ratio of more than 2 to 1, indicating expectations of further downside to come. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. There you go. I'm going to just stamp on this one. It doesn't. A put-to-call ratio means people are buying more puts if there's a higher put ratio. If you buy puts, it doesn't mean you think the stock's going down. That is the big reveal for all of you, because if you buy a put and you own the underlying stock, That is called a synthetic long call. A synthetic long call will limit your downside, but still give you most of the upside, okay? Insurance. It's insurance, yeah. I mean, too many people look at a put... I'm sick of people looking at a put-to-call ratio and go, everyone's bearish, everyone's bearish. But you are absolutely right. They are taking out a form of insurance on their upside bet. Mm -hmm. If they are taking out a longer put protection, i.e. upping the amount of puts that they own compared with the underlying stock, then they may be creating something called a straddle, which means they have protection in both sides of the trade. If they are going on like a three-to-one ratio of puts versus call, then they are potentially biasing their trading to the downside. But it still doesn't limit all your upside. We need to educate. This is what it's all about. Here we go. Uh, Instacart priced it. I'm off, off. feel better now. Uh, Instacart priced its own offering at $30. Uh, that is the top end of its range, valuing the firm at around $10 billion on a fully diluted basis. But that's a hefty downgrade from the $39 billion valuation it fetched in a funding round just two years ago, as demand for delivery services faded as the pandemic restrictions eased. The stock is set to debut on the NASDAQ today under the symbol cart. Nice debut. Nice rip code. Right. Meanwhile, Clavio. Now, I'm interested in this one. I'll talk about this later on. Clavio lifted its price range to between 27 and 29 bucks a share. That would value the firm at $9 billion and comes amid Reuters reporting it's offering almost 20 times oversubscribed. We'll have a look at the valuation of this one in a bit. I think it's quite fascinating. Now, a company you and I have clashed on many times many over times. the years. Uh, now we're just relying on a third party to get involved. <laughs> with us as uh, we talk about the rise in Ocado shares. Uh, Jeffrey's raised the online grocer's price target. The UK group reports its third quarter results in less than an hour. Arabile, well done for getting involved in this one. Uh, we've had many a ding-dong over it. But uh, the reality is that the investment bank's now looking at it again. It's had a settlement of a legal case. And they're looking at the uh, profit margin forecast going up. 
Yeah, so they, that's definitely been the case, right? So one key factor here is that everybody knows that the biggest part or the part that everybody's really interested in in this business has been the technology solutions business, which is those automated warehouses that they get with a, a whole host of, of retailers, including the likes of Kruger's as well out in the United States. So that business is going to be one to really look out for. Finally, looking to turn a profit is the hope as well. Uh, I mean, it has grown 59% in the first half of this year to around uh, 200 million pounds. So that is where they're looking to find a, perhaps a long-term sense of growth. That retail business is the 50-50% split that they have with Marks and Spencer. Marks and Spencer having previously said that they're actually not entirely happy with that part of the business and are looking to fix it. And what has happened since then is that Ocado has actually dropped prices in order to try and gain market share so that they could at least make a formidable rise then. And what you have gotten is that it could, in the end, squeeze margins and hold back profits, particularly for the third quarter. But they have put out perhaps a more positive sense of how things could be. You had in the first half of the year then an underlying profit of 16.6 million pounds, which was versus that 16 million loss that was initially forecast. So that was positive. That was great. But here's the other issue then. You have a pre-tax loss in that first half of 290 million pounds after 23 years of business. Ocado is still facing some pre-tax losses. That may continue to worry investors uh, for them. The retail post uh, is said to post perhaps a return to profit then. It did so in the second quarter, and that may continue. And, of course, that is particularly the guidance. More positive across the scale is what we're seeing on that front. When you take a look at the share price, well, if we had a three-year graph, you'd see this having actually fallen off still 70%. During COVID-19, it did manage to ramp up because it is the fourth largest UK online retailer, meaning that the online space grew quite uh, significantly during COVID-19. But that's fallen off, especially due to higher inflation. That's why they're trying to bring down those costs quite significantly. So we'll continue to see how things fare. And in around 29 or 30 minutes time or so, we'll see those numbers come out and we'll give you an update on exactly how things are looking for them in that third quarter space, Karen. Yeah, thanks, Ariel. I was just looking at liquidity too. I think key is we take a look at this stock as it continues to grow. What uh, strong is what uh, it reported in the first half? Cash of one billion pounds, liquidity of one point three billion pounds. But Ariel, thank you very much for setting this out for us. Well, Sokgen shares dropped more than 12% Monday after slashing four-year targets in the unveiling of its three-year strategy. The French lender is down almost 4% this year compared to a nearly 11% gain for the wider European sector. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.